pray all these things in Jesus' name. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 17, and we are in verses 8 through 16 this morning. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 16. And if you are willing, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 17, 8 through 16. Listen now to the word of God. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. How do you regard the Christian life? Meaning, if you were to describe it to somebody, what would you describe the Christian life to be like? Uh, Maybe perhaps you would liken it to therapy. I mean, it's positive thinking. It's gaining coping skills with the everyday problems of life to face our daily human challenges. Or maybe you see it more like a life of community. It's the place where you can relate to others, where everybody knows your name. Uh, It's a sense of belonging and we support one another. Perhaps you deem the Christian life a life of morality. Uh, You bring your family to church for a good moral upbringing. That's what it's for. Uh, You're reminded about the way you should live so that you can be a a useful citizen and that you can get yourself into heaven. Therapy, community, morality, these are just some of the ways people like to think about Christianity. But rarely when we think of Christianity or when we tell others about it, will we describe it as a life of hostility. It's a life of war. We might feel kind of skittish around that kind of language. It sounds too belligerent, kind of too John Wayne, macho. But the reality is that while God is love, 
while Jesus laid down his life for others and called his followers to love others and to be peacemakers, there is a grim nature to the Christian life. Scripture tells us that though Jesus comes to bring healing, he also says he brings a sword between family and friends. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden light, yet he calls you to carry the cross daily and follow after him. So if you think that when you trust in Jesus for salvation, all your struggles will be over, then you have not understood Christianity because Christianity is more battleground than it is playground. We are reminded of this even as we look to Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. Now, for the past several weeks, we have been what is known as the wilderness section of the book of Exodus. It's chapters 15 through 18, as Israel makes its way out of Egypt and to Mount Sinai, where they will receive the law of God. And what we've seen is that the wilderness is God's training ground for the people of God. This is the place where God makes himself known to Israel through various trials. At Marah, when the water was bitter, the Israelites learned to obey even when times were bitter. In the wilderness of sin, the Israelites learned to trust God for their daily bread. Masa Meribah, as we saw last week, we saw was a place of warning for the people of Israel. And since their escape from Egypt, we've seen that the greatest threat to Israel is themselves. It's been internal. It's been their own grumbling. Their discontent. I mean, perhaps even in this, this is a lesson for us. The Church of Jesus Christ in every age faces two threats, really. External threats from those people who oppose the gospel, reject the gospel message, and internal threats, defections, unbelief spiritual failures of the people of God. I do think the order in Exodus is important because it's not that external threats are unworthy of our attention. They are, but we must remember what 1 Peter 4 says, that judgment begins in the house of God. And it is a real temptation for us to just look at the government, to look at the moral collapse and the spiritual decline in the world around us and to see the church as primarily, even entirely in terms of our response to the ills of society so we become these self-styled culture warriors. And if we're not careful, we'll miss the first danger, not out there in the world, but right there in your own heart. Your discontent, your grumbling, your own hard-heartedness. Yet Israel, having dealt with this internal threat while they are still at Rephidim, have an external threat to send upon them. Now Massa Meribah, this place of quarreling, this place of testing, becomes a place of war. Here again, God trains his people. Here again, he is teaching Israel something, and he is teaching them that he is their banner in the battle, and that he is the one must win the battle. So there are three lessons from our passage this morning as we look at verses 8 through 16. 8 through 16. 
And the first is that we need to fight. We need to fight. Verse 8 says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, the, Amal- the Amalekites were a semi-nomadic people. And as far as we can tell, they lived by attacking other people and just kind of taking their resources away from them. Uh, they're robbers, mercenaries, pirates, whatever you want to call them. More importantly, they traced their lineage back to Jacob's brother Esau. We know from Genesis 36 that Amalek was Esau's grandson. So there's a long-standing kind of tension between these two tribes. In fact, if you're familiar with your Bible, Israel will continue to deal with the Amalekites long after this incident. Uh, Saul would fight the Amalekites, but unfortunately he would spare their king, Agag, who needed to be hacked to pieces. Uh, David, too, would lead skirmishes against them. And Israel would deal with the Amalekites as late as the time of Esther. Because Haman was an Agagite. That means he comes from the royal line of Agag and the Amalekites. Now, Moses doesn't mention the reason for the Amalekites' attack. We can only imagine what they're, why they want to attack Israel. Perhaps they feel threatened by Israel suddenly arriving in their territory. After all, I mean, this is a lot of people coming out of Egypt. Uh, the land is very unforgiving. It's hard to find food. It's hard to find water. Uh, so if you're in Amalekite, you think, don't take my food and don't take my water. Maybe they heard about their gushing water. and They were like, ooh, I want some of that. Or perhaps they hear about how the Israelites plundered the Egyptians and thought, hey, the, these guys used to be slaves before. And, you know, this is going to be an easy and this is going to be a rich plunder for us. Whatever their reason, the attack was cowardly. Turn with me a couple books over, out of Leviticus, I mean, out of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25. I'd love to hear the sound of people flipping their Bible pages there. Or swiping across as well. Uh, Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. Follow along. Remember what Amalek did to you on the, way, on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. That gives you a little insight into what's going on here in this attack. Here was Israel. What are they? Faint and weary. Slaves looking for food and water. Haggard. Tired. And what about the Amalekites? What did they do? They cut off their tail. What does that mean? In other words, they attacked those that lagged behind. And who do you think are the people who are lagging behind? Likely pregnant and nursing mothers likely young children and the elderly. So not only was the attack unprovoked, it was targeted against the weak and the helpless, the stragglers at the back of the line. This is the bully picking on the new kid on the playground, the the weakest kid on the playground. It's no wonder that Moses comments at the very end here that they had no fear of God. Let's turn back to Exodus 17. Look at verse 9. 
Moses says to Joshua, choose for us men. Go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Now Moses appoints Joshua to respond to this attack, and this is the first time we kind of encounter Joshua. Uh, He's never been mentioned before. There's not much introduction here, so evidently he's someone that everyone who was reading this for the first time knew about. Uh, Later in Exodus, we find out that uh, Moses refers to him as his young assistant. He's Moses' right-hand man. He will be the successor of Moses as he leads the people of Israel into the promised land in the book of Joshua. But think about what Joshua is being asked to do. He has the unenviable task of mustering an army from a group of slaves. I mean, there is no Israeli defense force right now. These men and women were not trained in Karav Maga. They were, it didn't exist. They were not battle-tested people. You know, I imagine Joshua just kind of going around Israel, looking in every tent and saying, hey, you. Hey, you, like, how old are you? (laughs) Are you strong enough? Can you carry a sword? Do you even have a sword or something pointy to fight against these people? You know, take that, you know, that whatever, that spatula that you use to cook with. But they had to fight. Now, remember the Israelites have seen God's power of deliverance. They've seen divine judgments fall upon the Egyptians. They've seen God utterly obliterate their enemies by drowning them in the Red Sea. And back in chapter 14, God said to Israel, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Israel has been hemmed in, surrounded by the supernatural, led by a pillar of cloud and fire. They've been given manna by the day, water from the rock. God has saturated their lives with his power and presence in extraordinary and miraculous ways. So now, how tempting then to think that God himself now will simply take care of the Amalekites. Perhaps the people are thinking in their hearts, come on, God, your turn now, or do something I'm living in total dependence on you. I surrender all, and I'm totally passive. Do your thing, God. Glorify yourself. When Israel was saved out of Egypt, what did they need to do? Nothing. They had to have faith. They needed to trust God and go forward out of Egypt, and they were saved unilaterally by God's sovereign power. They needed to learn now, however, As they approach Mount Sinai and about to receive the law, that it takes not only faith, but also action and energy. In other words, God is training Israel that there is no let go and let God theology. A confidence in the mighty power of divine omnipotence is not the opposite of busyness in the use of means God has given us. Trust in God, the grace of God, depend on the spirit of God, and that means that men and women will go to war. They'll use practical, wise, and all the means at their disposal to advance the cause of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to be clear, the Christian message is not that we need to do good enough things to win the battle to win God's approval. In fact, the Christian message is that we're all sinners 
and we fall short of the glory of God. None of us seek after God. No one. And all of us, you and I, we all deserve an eternal judgment under, wrath, under the wrath of God. Yet God in his love sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross and pay the penalty of our sins. He died the death we ought to have died. He stood in the place of sinners so that if anyone would be, but repent and trust in him, they would be set free. They would be redeemed. No more shackles of sin. No more slavery to sin. Freedom. But this freedom does not mean that there's no striving in the Christian life. That there's no accompanying works by the Christian once saved. It is the consistent witness of the New Testament that the Christian life is a life of effort, is a life of striving, is a life of discipline. Romans 8.13, put to death the deeds of the body. 1 Timothy 4.7, train yourself for godliness. Colossians 3.5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. 1 Timothy 6, fight the good fight of the faith. Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation. Work, work, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God. Christian, make war. Bend every effort. Exert all your energy. Focus all your desires and all your power. Now, it's important for us to know our battleground. Uh, We are not Israel. We're not... This is not a call for us to be physically violent. This is not a call for us to go out and buy guns. We're not to take America back by force. That's not what it's about. It's not machismo, but we are to have a mean streak, not against other people. But Paul says in Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities of the cosmic powers of this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If you are a Christian, you need to recognize your enemies. Anything that weakens your trust in God is your enemy. Anything that tightens your attachment to sin is your enemy. Anything that weakens your grip on Christ is your enemy. Anything that makes God's word taste bitter rather than sweet is your enemy. Anything that promises you ultimate satisfaction if you give it ultimate submission ultimate allegiance is your enemy so make war just as we have sung not the way the world does but shield the faith belt of truth the sword of the spirit which is the word and so Christian you're going to have battles perhaps you're in one now you will share in suffering as a good soldier in Jesus you will have people at school who don't like you You'll have friends and family that will disown you for Christ. You will struggle with your own unbelief, your own doubts, your own fears, your temptations to seek revenge. There will be a battle for sexual impurity, a war to forgive and let go of bitterness and to believe the best of others. There will be a fight to trust the promises of God, and we need to fight even when we don't feel like it. And that's not hypocrisy. You know, hypocrisy is the self-proclaimed vegetarian that goes home and eats bacon at night. That's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is those people who pretend to be what they're not. 
But to do one thing, even though you feel another way, is not hypocrisy. When you, come, when you do the battle and you fight to come to church, that is not hypocrisy, that's fidelity, that's faithfulness. When you fight for your marriage, even when you don't feel much in love, that's fidelity, faithfulness. Doing what is right when you don't feel like it is called maturity. So Christian, don't imagine your life as simply sitting in an armchair to wing you to heaven. We must fight. You need to fight. Second, we need each other. In verses 11 through 13, we see this strange incident about Moses' raised hands. Raised hand, singular. When Moses holds it up, Israel prevails. And when his hands droop, well, the Amalekites, they get the upper hand. Thank you for some of you that, that got it. I wrote it in. Uh, we'll get to talk about what's going on with that later. But what I want us to pay attention to here is that Moses gets weary. And we can all sympathize with them. It's hard to keep one's hands raised above for a very long time, isn't it? I mean, if you go to a church where people raise their hands in singing, and that's totally fine if you want to do that here, it's totally allowed, please feel free to do that. But through the first song, it's usually the two-handed surrender, isn't it? But later on, it gets a little bit tiring, and they go to kind of to the mime. And then you get a little bit more tired, it might be just one hand, or the other hand. And then finally, it's just going to be this fourth song. By the fourth song, it's this, the low and open, right? I'm not making fun of it. I'm just saying it's tiring to raise your hands. And, and here is what, what is at stake for 80-year-old Moses if he should droop his hands. The lives of those Israelite in army. Every time he lowers it, he sees somebody die. <sighs> That's what's at stake. So Aaron, Moses' older brother, he comes to his aid, as we, you know, we kind of know about Aaron throughout Exodus, but so does her. Now, we don't know much about her, <laughs> but because later in chapter 24, he is an appellate judge of the people in Moses' absence, it would seem that he is one of the chief elders of the nation. The historian Josephus actually identifies him as the husband of Miriam, which, you know, no one can really corroborate. He's just says it is. So maybe it's brother and maybe brother-in-law with Moses at the top of the hill. And when Moses' hands grew weary, they helped keep Moses' arms up so Israel would prevail. And this is what we do as well, Christian. Luke twenty-two thirty-two. Peter was told what? Strengthen your brothers. Galatians 6, Christians are exhorted to bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 6, 22, Tychicus was sent to the church to encourage their hearts. This is what we do as Christians. We strengthen and encourage each other. We hold up each other's arms. And there are some of us here in this room that kind of understand Moses and what he's going through. You don't know if you can just keep your arms up just any longer. It might be the strain of college applications, the push to graduate, or you simply feel too weary to keep working on your marriage. 
you feel you can't go another week, you're too weary to hope, too weary to pray, and you need to say, you need to just hear someone say, what, what's going on? I'm on my way. You need to hear that from somebody. Beloved, God is calling some of you to be Aaron and her. And beloved, God is calling some of you to admit that you're in a Moses moment. It's hard to admit that we can grow weary. Uh, We're self-sufficient people. Everything we need comes to our doorstep in two days. Uh, We have master's degrees, PhDs. We don't want to bother other people because we don't want to feel indebted to them. We don't want to expose ourselves and share about our weaknesses because we feel like, hey, everyone else has got their life together. We feel embarrassed. But perhaps what you need most is the humility to admit that you need someone's help. And you need to tell them about your weakness and you need to accept their help. And some of us need to be Aaron and her to have eyes to see when somebody else needs help Even if it's somebody you don't know well. Even if it's someone that's not just four or five years apart in age from you. Uh, Think about how many sins could be avoided. Think about how many marriages could be saved. How How many depressions lifted. If we just but had eyes to see and to go up to them and say, how are you doing really? Hey, I'm here. How's your soul? I want want to pray for you. I I love you. You might not even know me. I saw you in the membership directory. But I'm showing up. And I'm going to lift up your arms. We need to fight. We need each other. Third and lastly, most importantly, we need the Lord. Notice that as Joshua marches off to war... Moses climbs a hill. Verse 9 says he took what? The staff of God in his hand. And whenever that staff was raised, the tide of war went in Israel's favor. Now, what do you think is happening here? Do you think that Moses is somehow standing on a hill so that when everyone sees him and sees the staff, that there's some kind of psychological effect upon the army? They look up, they say, oh, yeah, 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 Moses and the staff. He's up there. Let's fight hard. Uh, He's up there. There's a prayer meeting happening up there between, you know, Moses and his, he has a small group up there. That's possible. I mean, some people here, really uh, older devotionals, older commentaries will say that Moses, this is a picture of Moses praying. Uh, That's the way I've always understood this passage. But the Bible does not specify that Moses is praying. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find any examples in the Old Testament of anyone seated in prayer. Rather, what takes center stage? The repeated word seven times in our passage is the word hand. And it's not even the hand of Moses. Really, it's the hand of God. Because what is in his hand? It is the staff of God. The staff, this rod, is the emblem of the power of God and the presence of God to bring judgment on Israel's enemies and to deliver them. You see, by, by this staff, the Nile was turned to blood. By it, the sea parted and the Israelites passed on dry ground. By it, it struck the rock and water flowed. 
and by it, the Amalekites are defeated. In other words, what went on down below in the battlefield was determined by what was occurring on the mountaintop. It's not only the hand of Moses that was important, it was the hand of God who is sovereign. He is sovereign. He is powerful. Not one Amalekite died that day on the battlefield except an Israelite slew him. And yet, not one Amalekite would die unless God himself gave Israel the victory. The point of the staff is about the power of God. And that's why there is this strange language in verse 16. It says, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. It's as if to say, when I raised the staff heavenward, it was as if I laid hold of the throne room of heaven. And Yahweh himself came down to fight for us. He fights for you. That is why verses 14 through 16, the Lord commands Moses to write down this battle and to build an altar. It's, a, it's an altar of remembrance. Why? Because Israel needed to remember, the Lord is my banner. Now, some of us, when we think about banners, uh, depending on what age you are, you might think a banner is a pop-up on your computer. Maybe it's a, for you, some others of you, the banner is a notification on your phone. Uh, depending on which generation you grew up in, you might just be thinking in your mind, is banner over you, is banner over me, is banner over us, is love, love, love. But that's not what this is. This banner here is a military term. It's the signal pole around which the army rallies and regroups. It establishes identity. It helps remind the army who they are. On the battlefield, it provides all the bearings of where you're supposed to be. As long as the banner is flying, the battle is not lost. And there is always hope. And so when it says, the Lord is my banner, it is saying, the Lord is the, the one in which whom we take heart. The Lord is the one whom I must look to for victory because where his power and presence is known, no enemy can stand. So what is the Christian life like? Yes, it's a fight. It is a fight. And we must not fight alone. And we don't need to fight alone. But our confidence is not in the means we use or in our own diligence or in our own clever efforts it is always the power and presence of God who is with us and so Christian as you labor and fight down here on the battlefield and you battle the flesh the world the devil look to the hill look to the banner the cross of Christ, because that is our banner. The cross is our standard. We rally to its side. It orients us. It gives us hope. For we are assured in Philippians 2.12, it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in us both to will and work for his good pleasure. Brothers and sisters, do not be discouraged. God fights for you. God fights for us. 
He fights for us by his own Holy Spirit renewing us. He fights for us by giving us the church that our hands may be raised. God is mighty to protect us and defend us, to defeat everything that would defeat our faith, and to deliver us at last to his heavenly kingdom. Do not forget that the Lord is your banner. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word and the way it instructs us day by day by day. And it is by the spirit of the word that we are, the spirit illumining the word, that we are able to take up this sword and fight against the fiery darts that come our way. And Father, we pray for this morning's preaching of your word. And we ask that your word would find a place in soft hearts. And that we would be encouraged, reminded, and to look to, look to you. That you are ever present with us. And that any victory that we claim, we know. That you receive all the glory. For it is by your strength, by your power, that we will win the battle that you have laid before us. Make us faithful soldiers in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.